0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. I feel very privileged uh, to say that we've got back with us on the mic, uh, John Perkins, as you uh, may remember from previous episodes, the economic hitman. Um, And he has just recently released a new edition to the economic hitman, talking about China's economic hitman strategy. Now, um, most of you guys are going to be familiar with John. So what I'm going to do, we're just going to dive on in. Listen, John, you've released a third edition uh, to the Confessions of an Economic Hitman, the new Confessions expanded on it, and now there's this third one. What, what for you was the reasoning for putting out a new addition to the to the book? What more was there that needed to be said that you haven't said already in in your other titles? Yeah,
1: well, Sunny, so it's, it's, I really see it's it's the third in a trilogy, and the the first the first was about. The kind of economic hitman I was. The second was about the second wave of economic hitmen, which were people that had d- used similar policies to to basically put a lot of debt in, in in the higher income countries, like the European countries and the United States, et cetera. Uh, people who worked for corporations. So when I was an economic hitman, it w- was pretty generic. We were just trying to get uh, resources for the United States, get put U.S. companies in a dominant position. And then the second wave, every major company had its version of economic hitman out there pushing for that company, pushing for that company to get better deals in the Philippines or or China or or Indonesia or pitting cities in the United States against each other for where they should locate their next headquarters, as Amazon did. And the third wave is China. So uh, China's economic hitman really started to rise to prominence uh, with the beginning of Xi Jinping's regime in 2012 uh, so china had made incredible progress internally in its economy it had brought something like 700 million people out of poverty it had, had economic growth of around 10% for 30 years it was it was serving as a model and xi jinping decided to use that to go out and 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 compete with the united states for world domination so china's economic hitmen learned a lot from our mistakes and our successes. I was asked to teach at a MBA program in Shanghai and I realized when I was teaching there that one of the things they, these students who were who were designated to be China's future leaders uh, wanted to learn from me was, was what mistakes I made <laughs> so they wouldn't make the same ones. And what successes smart. <laughs> Yeah, very smart. So uh, this third book is really exploring uh, China's role and the conclusion that these two countries have developed this incredibly effective economic hitman strategy for for gathering resources, for basically taking over the world at you know, empire building from an economic standpoint. And that this competition now is a race to disaster. It's created climate change. It's created terrible environmental destruction and income inequality, extinctions of species. It's got to end. And so it seemed imperative that, that I, I expose these two systems and also inspire people to think in terms of how can we turn this whole thing around? How can we stop the economic hitman strategy regardless of what country is implementing it?
0: This is what you spoke about um, the last time we spoke as well, very briefly towards the end of our chat about uh, death economy that we now have versus the the life economy. But yeah, uh, the impacts on local environment and climate notwithstanding this idea of lifting people out of poverty, isn't that also something we should be aiming towards? I mean, yeah, around 700, 800 million people being lifted out of poverty. Surely that's that's a good thing, right? I mean, oh. yeah. Is that not something that we should be encouraging across the globe?
1: Absolutely. And, and, and a lot of countries in Africa and Latin America see China's model as a much more successful one at doing that than the US model. But I think the other aspect of it is that we need to lift people out of poverty by employing them in things that that promote a life economy, not a death economy. So rather than continuing to focus on short-term profits, short-term materialistic consumption of things that really aren't necessary for life as we know it on this planet, we need to focus on things that will pay people, give people jobs, bring people out of poverty by paying them to... Uh, to rejuvenate uh, the uh, coral reefs around the world you know to to clean up pollution to to mine all the plastics floating in the oceans to uh, regenerate uh, destroyed environments uh, and to recycle to create new technologies like we've done with solar and wind but taking it to the next step and you know technologies we haven't even envisioned so far technologies and and processes and and products that will make life better on this planet not worth. It's not about stopping growth. And it's it's certainly about bringing people out of poverty and giving people jobs, but it's about giving people jobs in areas that will make the world more sustainable, that'll make our economic systems more sustainable. And frankly, that'll that'll cut back on this terrible divide between the very rich and the and, and the and the and the rest of the world. Actually, yeah. especially the poor, but the rest of the world, basically, we we need to really move in a new direction.
0: What exactly is a, a death economy? Um, y- y- you've mentioned this idea of us taking up resources from the planet and the idea of a life economy versus a death economy. What exactly is a, a death economy then? Yeah. Well, we,
1: yeah, we start, I think, with the definition of what it means to be successful. A death economy defines successes as short-term materialistic gain, short term pro- maximizing short-term profits for corporations, regardless of the social and environmental costs, and encouraging everyone to consume, consume, consume things that we really don't, don't need more of. Uh, you know, in, instead of uh instead of buying one or two shirts, you know, that are really good shirts that'll last a long time, buy a lot of shirts that that aren't going to last that long. So every day you can show off a new shirt. You know, there's, there's there's a lot of advertising campaigns that encourage us to do this. This is part of the death economy. It's about maximizing short-term materialistic gain. And in that process, it is basically consuming and polluting itself into extinction in the short term it's depleting the resources that it needs for the long term that's the death economy so now, the life, yeah go on. yeah the life economy by contrast looks at the long term and and uh, you know to maximize long term benefits for people and nature and you know, human history has really been about that for most of the 200,000 years we've seen ourselves as humans, up yeah. until very recently. You know, the, 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 it's always been about future generations. You know, the famous seventh generation, and and interestingly, that's it actually is part of the communist plan. They have these long-term plans that, that they also now are looking at short-term uh, uh, profits. So, so they've kind of got a combination. But I think what we all need to understand is that the the, the life economy is an economic system that's that's a a regenerative system. It's not a degenerative system. And it looks to the long term. And yes, we make some profits in the short term because businesses have to make a little profit in order to continue. But we make them in areas that are contributing to cleaning up pollution and regenerating destroyed environments and coming up with alternatives to fossil fuels and so on and so forth. We've been headed in that direction uh, for the last uh, few years, even the last few decades. There's been movement. I mean, look at the incredible uh, advances we've made in solar and wind and, and some other forms of energy for, as, as one example.
0: So then, if we say uh, a death economy is resource and mineral extraction, damned be the consequences to the local environment or anything else around it, and then a life economy is more so working in tandem with uh, your surroundings, in tandem with your environment, in tandem with also our our neighbours on the international scale, would that be a sufficient uh, way to summarise? Okay.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I like I like the phrase to live as part of nature rather than apart from nature. So in a death economy, we see ourselves as apart from nature, human supremacy over nature. Yeah, and a life economy sees us as as living a, as a part of nature. We're not supreme over nature. We're actually subject to the laws of nature.
0: Absolutely, as as we see with environmental disasters, we're certainly not above it now. One thing that I do ask, uh, with that being said, in a way, what separates this idea of a life economy from something like ESG scores? We saw with somewhere like Sri Lanka that when they tried to work tightly towards these ESG environmental, social, and governance scores, which should have made them more environmentally friendly, should have made them more eye-catching for investors, shall we say, the economy instead collapsed what what is the difference between this idea of what you call in the book a, a knowledge economy versus a knowledge economy a life economy versus something like those esg scores
1: well i think if you know what we do need is new metrics because gdp is a lousy metric gross domestic product which really measures how well the wealthy are doing in the big corporations that's that's where the emphasis is but if you want to implement new new metrics, it's it's tough for a, a country, particularly a fairly a country with a, a an economy that's not a major global economy like Sri Lanka or other countries to 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 really adopt this. It makes it difficult because they've got to deal with the outside world. They've got to deal with people who are trying to corrupt their leaders and their businesses and and so on and so forth. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's really, really important that we develop new metric systems and that the big the countries that have such incredible power and influence over the rest of the world, like China and the United States, uh, participate in this and set, and set themselves up as models. So, China and the United States combined produce almost 50% of the world's GDP and, and almost an equal amount of the p- pollution. Uh, it, it, in Japan is second with only seven percent. I mean, third with only second percent. Um, and so, what we see here is that if the United States and China can't come together, we can disagree on many things. We can we can disagree about Taiwan and Afghanistan and on and on and on. But let's agree that no one wins this race toward disaster. No one wins on a dead planet. And and you know if these two countries don't come together to at least create this a new philosophy which emphasizes uh overall beneficial growth that benefits people and nature and we really don't stand much of a chance i think
0: so to the outside eye it might just look like china's doing exactly what the u.s did uh from the 70s onwards when when the u.s kind of realized that mm, we can get control over countries without necessarily um without necessarily invading you know why why is it so disastrous what is it about well we know you've said economic hitman policies so uh, anyways are a bad thing what is it about their policies that is so bad
1: well China first of all what's good about China (laughs) why is China successful in selling their policies Uh, They they have this very successful model they can look to of of 10% economic growth for about 30 years, pulling, now now we say, uh, it looks like the World Bank is saying more than 800 million people out of poverty. No one else has ever done anything resembling that. And so if you're a leader of an African nation or a Latin American nation or other places, you, you, you look to that as a very successful model. It's a great story there, and 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 I talk in the book uh, about how there's really four pillars to uh, the economic hitman strategy. One is is fear, you know, military might and so forth. And there's a long story behind that, a long history. Second is debt, which is what economic hitmen do. The third is is anxiety over insufficiency, which is you know we don't have enough money. We need our we need to develop our resources so our people can have better education and healthcare, and that opens the door to economic hitman. And the fourth is divide and conquer. And these have been traditional methods that have been used with different emphasis on different parts of them for for a couple of thousand years <laughs> by dominating civilizations. And recently, you know, we really focused. By we, I mean. U.S. economic hitmen like me, on debt and divide and conquer. You know, you got to join us to fight the, in the Cold War against the Soviet Union, etc. Until the Soviet Union ended, and then we were still like, you got to stick on our side. You know, you got to be with us wherever we go. You got to be on our side. Well, China has also implements these four pillars, and they're focused very much on the debt side and and uh, the, getting resources and, and, and the, the fear of the, the anxiety over insufficiency to help poor countries rise out of insufficiency. But they've turned this idea of divide and conquer on its head. So they say, no, join us and you'll be part of the new Silk Road. The, we're not dividing and conquering. We're going to bring all the nations of the world together in this incredible trading network. So And so China really hasn't focused very much on the military, except in its own re- region, you know, the Taiwan, Tibet, uh, Hong Kong. But it, it doesn't have a history of going outside except in trade. The United States has a long history of building, building military bases on many other countries and attacking countries that are far away, like Vietnam and, and Iraq and Afghanistan. And China doesn't have that history. That's not to say that they won't do it in the future. I don't know. People bring this up a lot. I have no idea, but they haven't. Hmm. And instead, they they have focused on on the story that they want to bring the world together. So whereas we would go into a Latin American country, let's say Peru or Argentina or Ecuador, and we'd say, "Hey, you know, join us in bilateral trade agreements uh, with the United States." China says, "No, no, don't. It's not bilateral. You, you're gonna. You, we're gonna increase trade with everybody for you." So Ecuador, Peru, Argentina, we're gonna help you build ports so you can trade with africa and the middle east and india all over the world it's a very very compelling argument so that's the side where china really has a good story to tell the dark side is that china's built a lot of terrible projects around the world if i go name ecuador again i go you know a country that i know well i just i was there recently uh, they built a huge, huge hydroelectric dam. That's they built it on a fault line in an extremely fragile rainforest next to Reventador, an active volcano. It's never operated at full capacity. It's 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 generating room where it's got eight general huge generating plants is is riddled with cracks. Jeez. It's building a mo- it's building a mine in the Amazon rainforest, a huge mine for copper, gold, and co- and, and cobalt things that are essential to the green economy. But part of that is a 263-meter-high dam to retain mercury, cyanide, and other toxic waste waste that are used in the mining process. And a friend of mine, who's an engineer hired by the United Nations to go in and look at this dam, has said it's bound to fail at some point in the not-too-distant future. And when it does, these incredible wave of toxic waste will go through the Zamora River, down into the Amazon, It'll go through Peru, through Brazil, and down into the Atlantic. So China's built a lot of bad projects. And when I talk to Chinese people about this, or officials, they'll say, well, we're on a growing curve. We made those mistakes, but we're not going to make them anymore. Well, if you happen to be the developing country, the Ecuador or Peru or whoever, on, on the other end of that, it's a terrible mistake because these countries are still told that they owe the money that they yeah. borrow to hire Chinese companies to build these projects. So
0: essentially they're the first pancake out of the mix every time. The first one that gets a little <laughs> bit, yeah. A little bit.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then I laugh, but it's not a laughing matter, but it was a good analogy. Uh yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. So you got these you got the light side the model that they it showed to the world on the dark side, which is that the implementation of that model, especially in other parts of the world has been sometimes, not always, they built some good projects, but they've built a lot of bad projects also.
0: Yeah. And then one of the other things that you talk about as well in the book is the fact that although China say initially, we're not going to get involved in your politics or anything else, they're very hard lined on the fact that uh the countries that they invest in should stand on the same side as them when it comes to places like Taiwan, Tibet, and Hong Kong, right? And they cannot speak up for anything, uh, let's say, with regards to the Uyghur Muslim population or the treatment of said population within China. Um, and one of the other things that you write about as well is if we take Indonesia for instance, uh, which has one of the largest uh, Muslim populations, uh, there's also something to be said about their treatment as a result of the Chinese investment there, right?
1: Yeah. You know, there's a mixed bag here because if you talk, and I just came back, it was in January, I was in several Latin American and Caribbean countries who, who, who who tied in with China big time. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and the fact of the matter is, China uh, is now the number one trading partner with 124 countries, and in the United States is only 40 45. Wow, that's <laughs> and incredible! That's all, and that reversal has happened in pretty recent history. You can there's a beautiful map you can you can Google it that shows that the various trade routes. Uh, but uh, so you know, if you bring up the Uyghur thing uh people in many parts of the world will say yes that it's horrible but what about your treatment of immigrants especially if you bring this up in central america say what about your treatment of our people when they when they try to you know escape from the the the, the devastating impact of some of the world trade some of some of the free trade agreements that you've signed that you've forced upon central america uh you know like uh, uh, cafta nafta and so forth and you know, if you bring up Taiwan and, uh, uh, Tibet and Hong Kong, they'll say, yeah, but what about your invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan? So, so there's there's a lot of different views of this, and uh, you know, and and you know, while China does insist that countries or, or they, they they make a very strong argument for why countries that, that they support should join them, uh, in at the in the in the, the votes of the United Nations. These countries will also point out that the United States has a long history of neoliberal economics that we and I, through the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, forced on countries when they took loans from us, that they had to privatize their utility companies, their water and sewage systems, and sell them to our investors. They needed to deregulate, uh, drop taxes on the rich, and drop some of the Wages for, for for their workers, so that we could go in and, and do a better job. So we have a long history of this, and uh, China makes the point of we don't buy into neoliberal economics. So they say we don't we don't force these things on you. But as you pointed out, they do d- d- have another <laughs> set of agendas. Agendas, yeah. That they do force. So again, it is not that uh, the the goals of both these countries economic hitmen. The economic hitmen are strategy of China and the United States, they have the same goals, basically. And there is a slightly there's a different approach. And I, I just want to keep coming back, Sonny, to the fact that neither of those approaches work for the world. We've got to move beyond them because they both create a death economy.
0: I I wanna I want to get to that and uh... Actually, that's that's a bit of a, a nice segue into this. So, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is, as someone who's so well steeped in economics and has gone to other countries and seen uh, the benefits of getting resources out of them, yada, yada, yada. Donald Trump wasn't the best president in the world. I think everyone can uh, uh, agree to that to some extent. I think some of his stances on foreign policy uh, were good, some not so good. At least he attempted something with the Abraham Accords. At least he attempted to put a deadline on pulling troops out uh, of the Middle East. But from an outside perspective, trying to bring back some kind of industry into the US was a good idea. However, where the flip side of this is The way in which he tried to do that was to release some of the tightening on regulations surrounding those industries. And that's something that China, when they do their foreign investment, they also do foreign investment in places where they don't have tight restrictions or regulations on development. So this is that idea of the exploitation of the environment and everything comes into it. There needs to be uh, the reason I bring the US into this and Trump into this is I think there needs to also be some acknowledgement that countries need to start becoming a little bit more independent, especially as we saw what happened during the pandemic the last three years or so, how many countries slipped into debt or economic crises over that period of time because of the fact that we are heavily reliant on this global economy that is fantastic when it works but if it does go to hell in a handbasket it goes really quickly so with that being said do you from your position see any way that we can make some kind of concession to this this idea where trump was then releasing some of the regulations kind of thing just to try to draw companies back into the u.s
1: it's a very complex issue because um, we are so dependent, uh, and it, and the world is so interdependent yeah. on global yeah. trade. So, for example, right now, uh, China controls, I, I think it's around ninety percent, maybe even a little bit more, of the world's lithium mines mm. uh, and and cobalt. I mean, the United States, a major U.S. corporation. Uh, Fremont, uh, Freeport, McMoran uh, had these huge mines in Congo that they recently sold to two, two big mines, to Chinese companies. Um, so we may bring these industries back to the United States, but we're at this point, we're still very, very dependent on China for the metals and minerals that are needed in these things. And that's just one example. It's, it's very hard in this world today to see, uh, you know, economic interdepend- in- independence, I think we, we're so tied and and probably should be. We are one people on this planet. Um, and the problem in, in in the lower income countries, so you take a country like most African countries and Latin American countries and some Asian and Middle Eastern countries have phenomenal resources in terms of oil or minerals, the ones we've talked about, but they don't have the wherewithal, they don't have the technology or the finances to develop those industries. They're dependent on outside resources. And right now, primarily China and the United States to come in and you know bring in the heavy equipment that's needed to make these things happen. And when that happens, these countries then have uh, control over them to a certain degree. It, you know, it's, it, it's so incredibly complex that unless we can come up with a unifying principle that we have a common enemy on this planet that we all need to. So let's say, Sonny, that there's all these aliens hovering above us, threatening to attack us. (laughs) We would hope that the aliens would be friendly, but let's assume for a moment that they're not. What does China and the United States and Russia and Brazil and India, what do we do?
0: Everyone has to team up. Yeah, There's probably yes. going to be one or two that want to be first to be first to get something out there. But yeah,
1: yeah. And history says that that's what happens. I mean, look at at the end of World War II; these countries that were horrible enemies—Germany and the United States, Japan and the United States—and and, and the NATO countries—we all came together to fight the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Uh, it happened really quickly. I mean, my God! Yeah. And um, so, so let's let's say now we are the aliens. It's not human beings. We don't have to attack human beings, but we have to attack our perception, our, our guiding principle of, of short-term profits, the, the, the very things that are driving the death economy. Let's agree that we have alienated ourselves by saying that we are apart from our planet. We're not a part of it. We're above it. We, you know, we, we can do whatever we want to do without any limitations. And that's an alienating concept. So, but that's what we have. So if we could just, you know, this is my goal is to, is to convince <laughs> everyone around the world, Ch- China and, and the United States and Argentina and India and Russia and everybody else, that there's this other alien force that's threatening all of us. And having mentioned Russia, I mean, it's really unfortunate that things like uh, the invasion of Ukraine and, and also the pandemic and other things have, have, have made us step back from actually looking at that thing. We're, we're focused on these uh, these crises that are encouraging the United States to get back into fossil fuel production as one example where you know, we've taken a step back from, from moving toward this idea of of a green economy of, of a life economy. But that's where we've got to go. Uh, that's our only hope I think as humans is to understand, that we are the, the human beings are not the aliens, but our concept of what it means to be successful human beings in the short term is has alienated us from the rest of our planet.
0: Isn't that though the basic premise of what capitalism is today? This idea, um, perhaps we can put it down to the neoliberal ideals of. If you maximize profits, everything else will take care of itself anyway, one way or another, right? Of big corporations a la Amazon, Starbucks, Apple, Google, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just doing everything they can to squeeze every penny out of every person on the planet. Damned, be the consequences. Uh, In essence, aren't you asking us to... Upend capitalism? And if that's the case, where do we go? Because I'm going to be honest, I'm not a fan of communism, and socialism leads to communism anyhow.
1: Well, capitalism, by its definition, is a system where the government doesn't own the means of production or distribution and it encourages competition. Um, So, what we have today in the world is something that a lot of economists are referring to as predatory capitalism and in countries like the united states um the uh, government does own the means of production but those who own the means of production essentially own the government you know because we all know that corporations have you know no, nobody gets elected to a high position in the united states without a lot of money which Some comes backing. from yeah or yeah. their or their owners their stockholders <laughs> let's look and, at what
0: biden's were doing with chinese china money or anything else yeah there is uh, money uh, coming from somewhere yeah
1: right Right, and and every politician knows that if he supports certain corporations, that when he loses the next election, he'll get a very lucrative job with that corporation as a consultant or lobbyist or something. So, so we've got this system where, where, where yes, uh, government doesn't own own the means of production, uh, but the means of production, <laughs> those who own the means of production own the government. And we don't encourage competition, really. On on some levels, it's encouraged. But as you mentioned, these huge companies that drive the smaller ones out of business, if it's to their advantage to do so, they just go ahead and do it. So we've got this this predatory form. You know, capitalism in its truest sense is little farmer's markets. We're having them growing up all over the world now, and and it's the way indigenous people have always dealt. And so if we look at the 200,000 years or so that we've been human, we've had a lot of capitalism that's like, that's like that, that's that is you know competitive but also cooperative. Proper so free market. market in the Andes. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in Latin America. Go to a little market in the Andes and and you want to buy a poncho for, for your sister or, or, or whatever. And 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 uh you, you go to a guy or woman who's selling lots of ponchos, and you say, Well, I like that poncho there, but I want it in blue. Do you have it in blue? No, I don't, but let me, I'll find you one. And so she goes running around, and she goes to one of her competitors, <laughs> and they, they work out a deal. They 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 cooperate. They're competitors, but they cooperate to to find for the customer what the customer wants. And uh, you know that's a, but that's still that's capitalism. That's a, that's another form of capitalism. We have a very predatory. We have an aberration of capitalism, and uh, so you know, and and incidentally. China has a somewhat different system in that many of its biggest corporations are more than 50% owned by the Chinese government. So that's a very interesting one. Uh, Are they capitalistic? Well, yeah, pretty much so. But on the other hand, and and what's interesting about that is it means that when when the corporation makes profits, the government gets a pretty good share of those that it can then distribute (laughs) to help poor people or do whatever it decides to do with them. Whereas in the United States, our government doesn't control the corporations, and many of the corporations don't even pay taxes. So our biggest, most profitable cor- corporations don't do anything to help, uh, you know, finance the police or the fire departments or or, or, or poor people or, or or anything else or social or you know, uh, uh, well social security, yeah. social security or or Medicare or anything. Whereas in China, they don't need to worry quite so much about taxes because the profits come in through the corporations, through some of the biggest corporations directly to the government. So that's an, it's another interesting system that I think has very much worked to their benefit in terms of how you bring, bring people out of poverty.
0: It's what Justin Trudeau said, isn't it? Where he said he's uh, envious of the way that the CCP do things where they can turn things on a dime because mm-hmm. of the fact that they control the companies, they control the corporations, they have this proper say-so. Whereas you know, in, in let's say, uh, the US... Uh, y- the government can't wholeheartedly control what Apple does or what Google does. They can make sanctions or suggestions or something, but at the end of the day, it's Apple's choice. And if Apple said, you know what, screw it, we don't need you guys, we're going to move our our business to the Ukraine or something, for example, then, then they have the free ability to do that. They are not owned by the US government. With that said, though, that totalitarian nature of the CCP that it's my way or the highway attitude essentially of Xi Jinping for me and I've thought about this long and hard I prefer the US's way of doing things in the sense of it's the devil I know rather than the devil I don't because if we now lose our position globally and I've benefited from uh, growing up in the UK of course uh, I've also had the ability to travel you know some ways around the globe and whatnot and I've benefited from the democracy that I've grown up in albeit It's a bit of a sham democracy given the fact that it's enforced by the uh, armies of the UK, of the USA, of those controlling powers as they be. I fear that if China was to quote-unquote win the economic war that there is here at the moment, that free ability to move and ability of free choice and our ability now to discuss the downsides of the controlling governments, I fear that that won't be there anymore. So as much as I wholeheartedly agree with you that the EHM strategies are horrible, and what we're doing needs to stop. I'm happy with the devil that we know.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm very solidly pro American. And people, people sometimes look at me and say, no, you're no, I'm very pro-American, but I also understand that one of the tenets of democracy is that you criticize yourself and your leaders. Yeah. you look at what, what mistakes have we made? What, why has China been able to do to outmaneuver us all over Africa and Latin America and, and most of the rest of the world? How have they done this? What, what, you know and it isn't just because they've done a good job it's because we've made a lot of mistakes. What are those mistakes? And you know, a very obvious one is after 9-11, we we devoted almost all of our attention to the Middle East, especially to Iraq and Afghanistan. We pretty much ignored Latin America and Africa, and China just went right into those countries. Where there's a vacuum, China goes in. It's happening once again. We we get out of Iraq and Afghanistan, or, or pretty much get out, and we immediately start devoting our all attention to Ukraine. And I'm not suggesting that any of that's wrong, that we should do something. But what I am suggesting is that we've got to also recognize that the rest of the world is out there. And 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 if we don't pay attention to what's going on in Africa and Latin America, China will. And I'm very gratified to see that the vice president is you know heading off to, or is currently, I'm not quite sure what the status is right now, but in Africa and and traveling around. I think I think there's an, there's an attempt now, for, I think the United States is beginning to recognize the fallacy of of ignoring the rest of the world, so I totally agree with you that you know I'm I, I'm I'm terrified of the way things are going. I don't want to have a system like China. And incidentally, all the people I talk to in Latin America and, and Africa and, and and Zoom with or meet with in person will tell will tell me that although they may like the Chinese economic model, they don't want the China, China- they don't want China's uh, authoritarian governmental model. Is there something in between? I don't know. What I know, what I want to do as an Amer- good as a what I consider to be a very loyal American, is point out our faults and 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 how do we how do we correct those? You know, if you're if you're if you're playing on a basketball team or or some other team and you're down to the finals and you've got to win three out of five games and you've lost two to your opponents. Uh, do you just go off in, in the corner and say, damn, they're, they're, they're cheating, they're not playing, they, you know, they're not playing fair, the players are too tall, or or do you really look at what did, what have we done wrong? How can we how can we improve? The only way you're gonna be <laughs> you're gonna come back in that third game is if you figure out how you can improve because you're not gonna change them. And so I think for the United States right now, the the thing to, to really look at is is how can we improve? What mistakes have we made? And unfortunately, we also live in a country here in the United States where House of Representatives people serve two years, Senators serve six and presidents serve four. And in China, you've got an, you've got a leadership that just, just keeps extending itself. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge advantage to keep extending yourself if you want to you know implement policies that immediately take hold. It's not an advantage if you want to have a democratic process. So, no. so 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 this but but there's that, that challenge, and, and in the United States right now, we're seeing how we really have a pretty dysfunctional democracy. The Republicans and Democrats have a very, very difficult time compromising on on anything. And darn it, you know, we've got a, a new election uh, era coming up here for presidential election era. And we're going to see, you know, who can get tougher on China, who can create more antagonism around the world, you know, who can be a little more hawkish and at the same time appear to also support social security, et cetera. And and it's it's unfortunate that we're in this period where we've got to look at the them and the us, one, instead of recognizing that that there is no them and us. But the, the Chinese people, the American people, the British people, the Argentine people. We all have the same needs: clean air, good food, nutrition, good housing, you know, love, compassion. We all, you know, it's it, it's the leaders that then drive us to believe that we somehow are different from them and that they are a threat to us. And in fact, their leaders may be a threat to us, but we, you know, it's it's a it's a reimagining of what it means to be humans, Sunny, and I think. That is our hope for the future, is is evolving into a new attitude of what it means to be successful humans on this planet.
0: (laughs) So you say that, and you say we need to work together, you say we all need to come together. Um, Isn't that what China is trying to do with the Belt and Road initiative? I'm I'm here in the Netherlands, which is basically the other end of, of that Train line that they're in the process of uh, finishing up, essentially going all the way from Beijing, China, throughout Asia and Middle East, all the rest of it, over to the Western side of Europe. Isn't that what China is doing, albeit in a dirty way, albeit in a way where the infrastructure isn't very good? And as you say, ready to break down at any moment. And as you've written about, uh, infrastructure whereby the promises that they fulfilled, they're not even able to keep in terms of energy expenditure or energy production rather. Isn't that what they're trying? So can we not say at least they're giving it the good old college try?
1: Yeah. Well, I think we can certainly say that that's the perception that they're selling to the world and whether whatever Xi Jinping actually has as his goal, I have no idea (laughs) who does. But but, uh, I think... I think I've got a good idea. But yeah, but I mean, the students that I taught at the at the uh, at, at this you know, MBA program in China, which is considered to be one of the top ones in China and in the world, they certainly felt that way. The the the, the hope is in the New Silk Road and bringing the world together. And uh, um, I you know I think the United States, the the idea of build back better and so on, whatever you think of Biden and so on and so forth, or with, not much, you're... if I'm honest. <laughs> Whether you're Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. But the United States, I think it would be wise for us to, to, to rather than uh, objecting to the New Silk Road, rather than trying to fight it, I think I think I think the Netherlands has has joined the New Silk Road. I think you've actually officially accepted it, oh, it for a, silk a, silk. for a long
0: time. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. until so or
0: something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, almost all, I of think, Europe, almost
1: all of Europe, the United States is one of the few holdouts in the world it would seem to me that it would be to our advantage to say yeah let's be part of that and 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 let's 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 come together to to build a better world through better communications better transportation better energy systems you know let's 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 electrify all the energy all the communicate all the transportation <laughs> systems between africa and and asia and europe and so on and so forth uh it's time to do that it's but politics In much of the world and you know i'm very tuned in right now to american elections Uh, the politics is going to dictate that we that people take a hard line against that there's a there's a huge tendency toward nationalism right now in 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 many many countries including the united states
0: italy just had a massive uh, election win for someone who basically um campaigned on more of a nationalistic approach yeah yeah one of the first things you said there is not sure what Xi Jinping's plan is and I think for myself I see quite uh, and I've I've spoken to other people on this topic as well and I mentioned it in the last time we spoke too I think that the plan is to create that authoritarian one world government and you know, we see them working almost hand in glove on policies similar to that of the World Economic Forum, and we see this idea. Also, you mentioned the Netherlands as as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, and uh, they're they're big time players in it. In have you are you familiar with the Tri State City at all? The idea of uh, the combination of basically almost the whole of the Netherlands, parts of Belgium, and parts of Germany in creating a giant smart city um which would be absolutely gigantic and the netherlands has already said that they want to bring in digital ids and and the rest of it for me that is where this is going that is where this is headed you have every central bank people that you likely will have worked with or not necessarily those particular people but these banks that you will have likely worked with in trying to create a digital currency that for me is where this is all headed regardless, again, of the consequences that may be. With that said, it brings me back to this idea of nationalism that you said there at the end, and it not necessarily being a a bad thing, so long as that doesn't stop us working towards more sustainable things that aren't going to lead to poverty. And I think at the moment, the idea of sustainability has pushed germany almost to the brink of energy poverty for many people it's pushed the uk the ukraine war notwithstanding uh to the brink of energy poverty for a lot of people pushing energy prices through the roof as a result of policy decisions that were made and i think it's fortuitous for governments that there's the ukraine war at the moment as it's masked some of those terrible policy decisions that have led to um quite frankly insufficient energy production from those nations now you mentioned the us is going back to hydrocarbon fuel production I, I think there does need to be some form of looking back within ourselves i mentioned that earlier as well both internally within the country of being able to stand on their own two feet it, and this is the second time i'm bringing this guy up and i know he's not everyone's favorite person but trump said it to germany back in 2017 2018 you guys are too heavily relying on russia if something were to happen you guys would be screwed and he was laughed at but he was right and i know we need to work together but we also need to have the infrastructure to stand on our own two feet regardless of what happens and this idea of working with China or even taking the US approach for me is, in some ways, dangerous.
1: I hear that. Yeah, yeah. What, so what do you? What What do you? So what do you uh, propose?
0: The idea of global cooperation is an absolute must. The idea of imposing specific requirements like what the netherlands is just going through now with the nitrogen issue and uh, gas production etc that to be done with just a massive tar brush everyone equal on all of that is going to negatively impact many countries and many countries abilities to pull themselves up out of poverty if there's going to be investment In foreign nations let's take for example india heavy polluter um if there's going to be investment of countries into india there needs to be investment in even if it's using hydrocarbon fuels coal plants with good quality chimney stacks that are cleaning out the exhaust output or nuclear power or something like that because at the end of the day one of the best ways to lift people out of poverty and is one of the reasons why you had a job is the energy side of things if we can improve the energy across the globe and energy production and i'm a big proponent of nuclear is is that is it not
1: well yeah so certainly energy and and becoming uh non-fossil fuel energy is is extremely important um and I also agree with you that, you know, we, we should do as much locally as we possibly can. Uh, but there's a lot of things that we can't do locally. And,
0: Absolutely. And- the Cobalt mines and things like that and copper and all the rest of it. There's only yeah. so many resources you have in your own land. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if it came down to true, if we really were back to, in a, to resource independence, the United States would be on topic. By far, because we've got incredible resources here. And we've now finding we even probably have lithium, although it's not really being exploited, but it's probably there and, and and everything else. Um, so I think we have to be very careful, but I think you know, as much as we can do locally, like you know, here where I live, I buy as much local produce as I possibly can and locally produce everything that it's possible to but but I can't buy locally produced. This computer I'm talking to you on right now is not locally produced. It's not even produced really in the United States, and every component, practically every component in it, comes from China, and but actually it comes from Africa <laughs> through China. <laughs> so it's very complex. Uh, so yeah, let's let's focus on the local as much as we can, but let's also understand that pollution is not local, and devastation of the environment is not local. As we demonstrate as we as as we uh devastate uh the rainforests of Latin America, where I spend a lot of time, we're impacting climate all over the planet. Uh and you know that's that's true with so much of you know what if uh nuclear waste go into the oceans around Japan as they did not too long ago, uh we find them on the beaches of, of California. Uh so we really, it's it's a, we're at a very, very fascinating time in, in human evolution right now, where we truly, for the first time in our history, are being threatened by uh, something that we've created, uh, uh, this death economy, really, which, we, you know, the problems, we can identify the problems as being climate change and, and environmental destruction, etc., but those really aren't the problem. They, they are problems. But the problem that drives all of that is this economic system that we've created that's based on short term. And if we can look to the long term and develop things locally as much as possible with a long term view in sight, and, and also recognize that we have to get along globally in a way that will help foster a life economy, then we're on a true path. And, you know, I think it's important Son, for each individual to recognize. We've talked a lot in very general terms, but we're all in this. We're all victims, and we're all collaborators because we all we're all consumers, and many of us are employees in these companies, and we're investors, or we're even in management or ownership. And uh, it's time that we really recognize that that our investments, our employment, our consumers, our consumption should not be driven by the idea of short-term materialistic satisfaction and consumption. It's got to be driven by a longer view of what it means to be human on this planet, or or we're going to find ourselves where, where, where there is very little humanity left on the planet.
0: I think that's quite a nice summation of of sort of where things stand at, at present what would be for the individual what would be your recommendation for for them to do to try to encourage a life economy both locally and on their national scale in as much as we can affect that
1: you know in this in this book the third in the trilogy of the economic hitman series i i give a lot of thought to that, I, a lot of recommendations. But with the time elements that we have here today, i, I, I boil it down to the one thing that we can all think about and that's five questions that each of us can ask ourselves. It doesn't matter what what our career path is or, or what our, who we are, we can all ask these questions. And the first one is, what do I most wanna do for the rest of my life? What'll bring me the greatest satisfaction, the greatest pleasure? And and for me, I would answer, I want to write. Uh, I love to write. I have a, a friend who's a carpenter who would say, you know, I want to work with my hands and wood. That's what I like to do. The second question is, how do I do this in a way that helps transform the death economy to a life economy? I would say, I want to write about those things. I want to inspire people to get involved. My carpenter friend would say, I want to use sustainable products. And the third question is, what's stopping me? I might say as a writer, well, I just don't have time to write every day. And I know I have to write every day if I want to be a successful writer. My carpenter friend might say, "Uh, you know, sustainable material is a little bit, costs a little bit more. My my clients don't want to pay. So the fourth question is when we confront this blockage, when we don't run from it, when we don't deny it, when we really look at it, how can we change our perceptions that will allow us to move forward? For me as a writer, I might say, well, wait a minute, I could turn off the television for an hour every night or two hours and get in an extra seven to 14 hours of writing a week. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, my carpenter friend would say, well, I'm going to tell my clients that if they pay a little bit more for sustainable materials, it's not a cost. It's an investment in the future. And the fifth question is, what actions do I take? Beginning right now, beginning immediately. And the writer has to write. The carpenter has to start building cabinets like this one or houses that are out of material, sustainable materials, and tell his clients and their children Look, you're, you're investing in the future. You're, you, this is a really good thing you're doing by, by using sustainable materials. It's an investment, and I think we can all, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a podcast host or or a, a teacher or a plumber or a, a welder or a dentist or whatever you are. <laughs> you can you can look at ways that you can do what you most want to do for the rest of your life because that's that's where we're successful when we truly follow our bliss that's when we're successful and how do you do it in a way that, that helps transform the death to a life economy we can all participate it may involve just sending out an email occasionally or a tweet or whatever or it may involve running for public office uh, you know it can it can be, there's many different levels but every one of us needs to recognize that, that we have a role to play we have power
0: Beautifully put. I think uh, fantastic words to end on. Thank you very much for your time, John. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Sunny. I appreciate all you do. Keep 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 up your good work. Keep bringing up these subjects. And thank you.